episode 155 of some like it scott i'm your host scott harvey and i'm joined as always by my co-host scott shelton today on the podcast we've taken a couple weeks to ponder and we'll see today if we've managed to come up with any answers surrounding the complex events of david lowry's surreal fantasy epic the green knight but first how are you scott i'm doing well we debated long and hard what movie we're going to do because candidly I'm going on vacation. We're recording this episode very early by our standards. uh, The Friday when we normally record Sunday or Monday even. And so we decided that we weren't going to go to a Thursday night debut screening of Free Guy to discuss that film. Although it's getting good. You shake your head, Scott, but it's getting good reviews. It's it's not a Scott movie. It's 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 definitely not a Scott movie. But I think I might if the reviews had been worse, I think I wouldn't have seen it. But I'm intrigued enough to probably go see this thing. Uh, probably not while I'm on vacation with my mother, who does not does not seem like that movie is up her alley necessarily. Uh, but maybe, maybe when I get back, NPC is. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with no on that one. Uh, but we are gonna see Stillwater, I believe. That's on the that's on the docket for tomorrow. Actually, tomorrow evening we're gonna go see Maddie D at the AMC Westchester 18 in Mason, Maddie Ohio. D at the AMC. Yeah. What? What? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no. I believe I said this last week, but that's that's definitely a good movie to take your mom to. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, because if you listen through all of last week's episode, you'll know I actually really liked Stillwater. Um, but I, I'm interested to see what your thoughts are on it. I think you'll, it'll probably be a three and a half star from you. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll Firing see. Firing from the hip already. I love surprised. it. No, I'm no, no, no. It. I'm just saying it. I'm, I'm not, I, I yeah. wasn't making an overall statement. I'm just saying it feels like a, I know you a, a movie that you give three and a half stars, stars to. You're just uh, saying that based off dark what would, water, what would, whatever. What would be an overall? What would be an overall statement is if I was to say just like every other movie, but I didn't say that. So you know. Oh, we, oh we did you not? Did there. you not say that? No, Sorry, I, did, I, thought, I, did. I thought you did. <laughs> um, but you know, what? maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. Uh, I think hey, it's, inter- it's definitely an interesting film. Yeah, I think. You know, my mom is a, is a fan of movies that are not, uh, quote, weird, I think is the way that she's when she doesn't like a movie. She's like, man, that was a weird movie, <laughs> which is my favorite, yeah, my favorite one my line review. Yeah. I was like, well, you know, um, the Green Knight is on the table for us to go see. I think that's a weird movie. Uh, Nine Days. Yeah, I think that that's a weird that. movie. Uh, what was that? The Suicide Squad? That's a weird movie. I think uh, what's, I will what's say- another one? Again, Stillwater, it's a good movie to take your mind to. It's probably a little bit weirder than you're expecting, or to, again, just a little bit different than you're expecting. Um, yeah. But again, I, I do think it's uh, it's probably your your best choice there, of, again, of the options that you have presented. It's, it's yeah, well, for, for a hot sec, I thought she was going to suggest uh, respect, and I and I very sternly dissuaded her. <laughs> I yes, walked her off that car. We're not going to see respect. <laughs> We're not going to see a, bio, a musical biopic. I was like, I'm, I, you know, if I wanted to listen to Aretha Franklin music, we can listen to it in the car on the way to the tennis track. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right, Scott. Well, speaking of interesting films, as mentioned, uh, we are a couple le- weeks late to the party, but our movie today is David Lowry's The Green Knight. 
The latest surreal mindbender from A24, The Green Knight, is a medieval fantasy set in Camelot, where we meet an aimless knight called Gawain, played by Dev Patel, who has aspirations of doing heroic deeds like the Knights of the Round Table. His uncle is King Arthur, played by Sean Harris, and when a mysterious figure dressed in green armor intrudes upon the king's court on Christmas Day with a challenge, Arthur looks to his knights for a worthy participant. The challenge seems a simple one. Anyone who is able to land a blow on the Green Knight will win his green axe. However, one year later to the date, that person must travel to the Green Knight's chapel and receive the same blow that they dealt upon the Green Knight. And that's all I really want to say for fear of spoiler, if you're worried about spoilers for a 14th century poem, at least. Uh, what ensues over the next two hours is a dark, fantastical odyssey that sees Gawain reckoning with whether fame and fortune is worth the cost to one's humanity. With a cast that also includes Alicia Vikander, Joel Edgerton, Barry Keegan, and Ralph Innocent, The Green Knight is one of the most praised films of the year and a new target for the A24 Vibes crowd. But Scott, does this epic reach the heights of the studio's other masterpieces, or is this a ponderous medieval quest in search of a purpose? I certainly think that it is a ponderous medieval quest in search of a purpose. I just happen to think that it finds its purpose. Um, and ponderous in all the ways that I think uh, actually work really well for the film, right? It, it does allow you to stew quite deeply in the themes and setting and overall, dare I say it's got vibes of the movie. I, I just think that this is one of those, this is one of those films that once you maybe a la like a James Gray directed film, maybe a little bit more well-known than David Lowry in the popular space because of Ad Astra, couple years ago and you know not everyone necessarily saw that movie but i think a lot of people knew about it because of brad pitt and the good reviews that it did get um even you know that's a movie that you didn't quite get what you expected probably if you went to see it and didn't know who james gray was and i think that's probably going to be the case for people who wander into the green knight on a saturday afternoon thinking that they're going to see some sort of king arthur type adventure story because that's not what david lowry has put on offer instead what he's been able to craft here is, you know, this really introspective and reflective tale um, about like, I would say almost meta meta tale about myth making, what it means to, um, you know, earn respect and the honor of, of people, especially in the context of myths. And I think that it is a film probably more so than any in a while where I didn't really know how I felt about the movie when I walked out. I knew there was a lot there to digest. I knew it was extremely well made. And I knew that I really enjoyed the performances, particularly the lead one from Dev Patel. But what I didn't know is whether I thought this movie really had anything, you know, truly meaningful to say. And it, it took a while. It, it did take quite a while for me to put those thoughts together. But, you know, you, you, you goaded me into it a little bit for a couple of days. Um, I was always going to go back and, and finish my letterbox review, but you gave me a little bit of crap for it, and rightfully so. But I did go back, and I did give my, you know, more fleshed out thoughts, which we can talk even more about here on the podcast. But I think it's a really great film. I think it is one of the best. It's certainly one of the best made films of the year so far. And I mean, I say that with the caveat that you just kind of have to throw everything out of the conversation from the awards time period. Even though I think there's a pretty healthy argument to say that those are movies that those are 2021 movies, but just the qu the quirkiness of the Oscar 
eligibility. This is the best film if you throw out things like The Father and Judas and the Black Messiah from this year, which I think are truly 2021 movies, but are in the awards conversation from last year. And uh, really moving, not in an emotional way, but in, in a spiritual way, I think. Yeah, I like this one a lot too, Scott. I really wanted to rewatch it because uh, I saw it the first weekend it came out, um, yeah. but just couldn't find the time. Um, but yeah, it, it made a strong impact with me. It's one that has not left my mind since I saw it for sure. Um, it's definitely that kind of movie. I, you know, again, I, I may have given you a little bit of crap about the letterbox thing, but oh, it's all in I good totally fun. Un- yeah. Yeah. And I, and yeah. I totally understand how this could be a movie that you would think I need to sit on this for a little bit. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I find the craft on display to be pretty overwhelming at times. Um, yeah. it, it really, and it really just, you know, sinks its hooks into you. It, it won't for everyone again. I think some people are going to find it too slow paced. Um, but I mean, I think I was prepared for what I was um, getting in, getting into. Uh, I haven't actually seen David Lowry's A Ghost Story, which is one that people talk about as being one of the best A24 films. But I, um, I'm familiar enough with it to know that uh, this was probably going to be uh, a lot more of a deliberately paced, you know, again, surreal film. It was. It certainly wasn't going to be the, you know, Camelot r- romp that some people probably came to it. Um, expecting to see. Although, again, the trailers for this movie, I think, let on fairly well about what kind of movie it was going to be. I just think people who came in expecting something different probably didn't really pay attention that much, just kind of saw what the plot description of the movie was and came. But regardless, I think you're always going to get, you know, people like that for audience members like that at movies like this. I mean, I've experienced it in the past with like Midsommar. Um, Again, laughing at the movie when they People shouldn't be laughing at certain parts, um, but I digress. I don't want to go too much into the audience experience I had because the movie, yeah, is, I, I think it's excellent. I think it has interesting themes going on. Uh, maybe if you just like, you know, boil them down to like a one sentence summary, it, it's not like earth shattering revelations or anything, but it's not so much about what the movie says as how it says it again, right? The aesthetics of the movie um the interesting turns that the story takes the decision i think that lowry makes in the final act of the movie to divert from the details of the poem the sir gawain and the green knight the medieval poem um and you know just some of the sequences are just like bravura filmmaking really um and he he uses dialogue sparingly in a good way um in some of these sequences i think um particularly there's a long um, dream sequence towards the end of the film that goes on for 10, 15 minutes or so that is is really captivating and really, again, top-tier filmmaking. Um, and, yeah, I mean, again, it's 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 a fascinating story. It's, it's incredibly unique. Um, it's well-directed. It's well-acted. Um, not for everyone, but, again, a few A24 films have managed to capture, um, you know, a... a huge audience um i feel like or you know again a mainstream audience and captivate the masses um they're you know an an independent studio for a reason they're doing things that other studios aren't doing um and once again uh, i say that in a very positive way again you know this did remind me of you know maybe another a24 film the witch if i had to compare it to another film um, but it really does feel like something all its own. And it, and it feels like a director, again, taking hold of source material and 
really making it his own. Um, and, you know, the, again, the direction he chooses to go with it and just the aesthetics of the way that uh, he creates the world and the way that everything is rendered on the screen. So big fan of the film. Um, I think it definitely lived up to the hype for me. Um, speaking of hype, Scott, there's definitely well, you some... also mentioned, sorry, you mentioned the, a ghost story, but you're not even, I think you probably have failed to mention the two movies he's probably best known for, which Pete's is the live Dragon, action remake of Peace Dragon yeah. and then the old man and the gun, which I haven't seen Peace Dragon. I, I mean, I haven't seen the old man and the gun either, but like the old man and the gun just looks like a super Oscar Beatty, typical drama. Robert Redford seems very different than this movie. Maybe it's a bit of a, a curveball as well with where the themes go in that film. Yeah. But it was really interesting to to see that, you know, David Lowry is also the director of a movie like that. And then the next thing that he's doing of any sure. consequence is the Green Knight. Uh, but obviously he has those roots in a ghost story. And I mean, Pete's Dragon's a little bit different, too, I think. Yeah, I, I refer to a ghost story because, again, it's also a 24. Yeah. Spiritually seems to be the most similar of his films to this one. But um mm -hmm. Scott, uh, Dev Patel is getting a lot of praise here for his leading performance. Obviously somebody, uh, you know, an, an actor who has been around a while, but maybe one that people feel has been underrated for a while, not gotten the roles um, that he has maybe necessarily deserved since he sort of broke through with Slumdog Millionaire back in 2008. Um, what do you think uh, about his performance here, He where he really is given the spotlight and the lead role? And uh, does he seize the moment, so to speak? I think he absolutely seizes the moment. I, you know, we've been big fans of his. I mean, Slumdog Millionaire was a few years before this, I guess. But we've been big fans of his since the newsroom, especially, which was 2012. So it's been almost a decade that he's been on my radar. Um, I don't I haven't seen Slumdog Millionaire, although I think that it is a film that I probably would like. Um, it's if good. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I did see it, I did see The Last Airbender. And so I guess I was aware that he existed <laughs> in that movie. But that was a little bit before I was clocking what actors of at that time, very little consequence were playing supporting characters in terrible films. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, but since then, like, you know, since the newsroom ended, I mean, he did have roles in lion and I think hotel Mumbai and the personal history of David Copperfield, but not huge roles, right? Like they're not these huge starring roles. And you could even argue that the green Knight isn't really either in many ways, but it's, a film with such gravitas um, and I think a lot of clout in the space that his performance, which is a huge part of the film, right? Like, so, yes, the filmmaking, the craft and everything is such an integral part of making the film what it is. But ultimately, he's the only main character in the film. Everyone else is very much a supporting a supporting role. So you could say like the two main characters are the filmmaker, David Lowry and Dev Patel. And I think that to get to a film of the quality of this, you need outstanding performances from both. And I think that you get it from both. I think Dev Patel really almost, there just feels like there's a lot of nuance in this performance. Like he's this kid and this nephew of King Arthur. And I just really love sort of the, the opening conversation before the Green Knight arrives at, you know, King Arthur's, castle where they're talking about you know oh i haven't like king you know sean harris saying, oh, i haven't gotten to know you why don't you tell me a story about yourself so i can get to know you better and he's this kid who wants to become a knight in his uncle's court but he doesn't have anything any story to tell he doesn't have any 
great feats um, that catapult him into this realm of mythical figures to kind of tie back to the theme that I mentioned at the outset. And I think that I really love that extremely vulnerable place this character starts in and has this sort of rush of blood moment when he is ha- when he's in the showdown with the Green Knight. And then you get the time skip a year and you see that I think you sort of immediately see in the performance the weight that that year and that particular act back that Christmas has has taken a toll on him. And I and I like the heaviness and almost the, you know, the melancholy and despair. It sort of, you know, milks out of this character. And I think that something about this performance just perfectly captured it with a lot of gentleness, I think, which is a, a strange way to describe it mainly, but it feels like a very quiet, gentle performance. And in a lot of ways, it feels like the world around him pushes him forward. Like he isn't making many of his own decisions. It feels like he is, he is an NPC. Uh, you know, he is this person who's drifting through the world and the world is the active character in the story. And I and I like that because I think you you really do get a feel from Dev Patel's performance of this person who's trying to wrest control of his own life. He's trying to generate some agency in what he's doing, and he's just not managing to do it. And the, that struggle, the struggle with that, trying to survive while also trying to take control of your destiny and take control of your actions, is something that I guess I just have a really hard time imagining being done better the way that it really felt like it, it conveyed a lot of the emotion uh, around that struggle. Yeah. I mean, it's a real sort of like coming of age story in a way for this character. I mean, that we Absolutely. see him really kind of losing his innocence over the course of this movie and the way he starts out to your point as kind of brash and um, you know, you know, both, kind of brash in a way but also you know again kind of just aimless again just searching for sort of his way in the world and searching for a purpose you know, again he seizes the moment when the green knight um you know comes into um the, the king's court and you know it p- proposes this challenge to the knights and you know he seizes the moment again this is like sort of his brashness he wants to have that story to tell and so he just kind of throws himself into this challenge without really thinking about the consequences and i think um that's you know kind of a major theme of the movie maybe is kind of the pointlessness in a way almost of chivalry um you know which obviously is a big sort of um idea in so many medieval stories and particularly stories surrounding uh, surround um centering on king arthur and the knights of the round table is this idea that chivalry is just like the ideal for um a knight to achieve and i think this movie kind of set you know shows that no what these people think of as chivalry or heroism uh, and obviously this can be transplanted to the modern day as well this isn't just like referring to medieval stories but um sometimes uh doesn't necessarily have uh the best consequences the consequences that you're wanting sometimes it's actually pretty stupid to kind of um do what you you feel is the the chivalric thing in this case for him it means he's just gonna go throw himself right in there and cut off the green knight's head without really thinking about hey what what are the potential consequences of this he's laid out the challenge right he said that uh, a year later you're gonna have to report to deal the same blow 
but he's so caught up in the moment of, hey, this is my chance to prove myself to be the hero. Uh, and again, I think Dev Patel conveys all of this very believably um, that he just, you know, chops off the head because that's what's going to get, you know, his reputation up in the short term. Um, but then, you know, as he's forced to actually reckon with the consequences of what he's done, yeah, the he, you know, he he his performance becomes like hollow almost, like he just becomes um, kind of a broken man by the end, and particularly again in that wordless sequence, which I mean I, I'll keep talking about because I was pretty dazzled by it. Um, just some of the shots on his his face again because he you know there's no dialogue during it, but some of the shots in his face as he is kind of like coming to terms again with. Um, all of the consequences of what he's done. He just looks like a broken man. Like he just looks like hollowed out from the inside. Um, and I think that uh, he's able to, again, Def Patel is able to convey all these different sides of this performance very effectively. So, yeah, I mean, he's a leading man. Um, to your point, maybe he just like hasn't quite picked the right projects, but maybe he's not getting the right opportunities either. I think that's more you what know. it is, you know, and there and there's mind. there's probably reasons for that. I don't, I mean I don't want to or or the roles he's being offered in these big but... projects are ones that he feels like are not the right fit for the kind of actor or the kind of characters yeah. he wants to be playing. Which is to your point, yeah. I think that you were about to make. Well, I, I'm just saying that you know we talk about John Cho as well being somebody that um, should probably be a leading man based on the performances he's given, and I think you could speculate that uh, the reason that neither of them is a leading man um, is something that they don't really have any control over. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. It's the state of the industry, unfortunately. But um, I think he's very good in the movie. Uh, Scott, your supporting cast here, uh, I ran through a bunch of names there There in my uh, when I ran down the plot of the movie. Alicia Vikander, Joel Edgerton, Barry Keegan, uh, A24 regular Barry Keegan. Um, yeah. Mr. And, A24. Uh, probably yeah he's up there sarita chowdhury plays um the mom plays the mom plays morgan lefay um and of course uh sean harris who i mentioned as king arthur kate dickey as guinevere and ralph innocent as the green knight um i mentioned the witch earlier kate dickey and ralph innocent of course play the uh the father and mother of the family in the witch so some other a24 regulars there um who stood out for you among this uh you know fairly notable cast supporting cast yeah i mean i think it's hard really to point out one specific one that maybe stood head and shoulders above the rest of the supporting cast because like i said it really does feel like this film is very focused on being a two-hander one hand being dev patel one hand being the craft of the of the filmmaking from David Lowry. If I had to pick someone, I think I would go with Ralph Innocent. I think that I mean I don't actually know if it's him doing motion capture or if it is CG with just the voice. I'm not 100% sure, but the the performance there, the voice performance, there is not much time to make an impact even with being the titular character in the film. He's probably on the screen for a total of 4 or 5 minutes at most um in, in this thing but you know i do think that this is another piece of the puzzle that might ha it almost is required because like when you get to the end of this journey right or when you or at the start of the journey you need to have this you know if you were to oversimplify it, right this villain right that you have to triumph over to become the mythical figure of sir 
Sir Gawain or uh, Gawain or Garwin, as I believe was once said by Sean Harris or every single time he maybe he said the name. We don't have to debate how to actually pronounce it. Um, I just thought it was so weird how many different ways it seems like his name was pronounced during the movie. Um, I, ju- I just think that it, you do need this really imposing figure and mysterious figure in the Green Knight. And I think that Ralph Innocence, at least at the very least, his voice performance provides a lot of that and provides this opportunity for the rest of the film to take advantage of. And when you get to the end of that journey, when, you know, Sir Gawain makes it to the end to the Green Chapel to face, you know, the to reap what he sowed, I guess, to put it, you know, quite literally. I think there's a lot of the 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 mystique of the character set at the beginning and sort of just the again like the aura of of this per, from this performance it creates a lot of tension and anxiety and uh, around what the resolution is going to be even even if you have read the poem and know what the resolution would be if it were not to be diverted from i think it does create this sort of rising tension in this final confrontation and I think that the performance just really delivers on setting up the film and also bringing the film home at the end of the day as well. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think the whole supporting cast is really good. Uh, but I, I I disagree in the sense that I do think there's a clear standout. For me, I think Alicia Vikander is excellent in this movie. Um, maybe my favorite performance of anyone. Um, and I just really like when people can do <laughs> which, which one. He, well, that's, the thing. I, that's what I was about to say. I really like when people can do these sort of dual performances. I think it's a really impressive feat for an actor to pull off. And obviously we have here her here as I think Essel. Is that her name? Uh, that is the, the peasant. Yeah. Yeah. The lover of Gawain. That's right. The, um, I guess and, it's, I guess the prostitute. I guess she's a prostitute. Right. So. Yeah. She, uh, peasant, I think, is is probably the right word. Again, she's she's clearly not. Uh, she doesn't fit in among sort of the noble crowd that um yeah that Gawain is generally around um they're kind of like conducting their rela- relationship almost clandestinely um it seems um, certainly looks like they wake up in a brothel on on the first on yeah, the, of the opening it's of the certainly movie possible but yeah. then she also plays you know sort of the opposite of that which is this you know lady uh, of the the sort of mansion where he ends up maybe two-thirds of the way through the movie with Joel yeah. Edgerton and um you know, develops this really sort of seductive side to her character. And, you know, much, much of uh, this, many of the scenes that take place in that um, home, and obviously we're into spoiler territory now, but, um, you know, are sort of involving this sort of sexual tension between her and Gawain and um, her trying to use that maybe for her own personal gain. Um, you know, again, the, the magic green uh, girdle uh, has a, has a big role in all of this as well. Um but uh, yeah, I mean, again, I, I think I, I just found her, both sides of her performance to be really interesting. I think when she is playing the lady of the, the mansion, she has a really sort of mesmerizing monologue that she goes on um, when they're sort of just there in the, the great hall um, that I was, again, I found really captivating. Um, but I, again, I like what she does, too, as sort of this scrappy peasant woman who is like desperately trying to keep hold of Gawain who she, who she really clearly has feelings for, but can like feel him start to slip away as he starts to, you know, align more with the noble crowd that he's around. 
you know, that coming from the reputation boosts he incurs as a, as a um, result of what he does with the green Knight. Um, and there's, yeah, they have that like one scene before he like leaves where she's just kind of like clinging to him, like trying to, to force him almost into saying that he loves her. Um, and there's a real sort of desperation in it that I found very effective. So yeah, I, I think she's really excellent in this movie. Um, and when we do our awards at the end of the year, I'd be surprised if this wasn't on my list for supporting actress because uh, I was pretty uh, pretty blown away by it. But but I think the the whole yeah the whole supporting cast is good. I think Ralph Innocent's a great shout. He, you're you're absolutely right. He does make the most of his um, little bit of screen time. Um, interesting portrayal of of King Arthur by uh, Sean Harris as sort of this like gaunt almost like you know he he's he's not the <laughs> chivalric again noble hero that we he's not the mythical figure yeah he's not yeah really they're really sort of unpacking that um with his character so i think he gives a good performance uh yeah it's i mean again good good cast all around barry keegan again he he's great at the thing that he does right which is just like showing up and weird you're like yeah, weird energy. You're like something is not right about this guy, and you know what? <laughs> something is not right about the guy uh, yeah. in this movie too. So, I think um, the, the first movie out. I ever saw him in was Killing of a Sacred Deer, and I can tell you in that movie there's something not right about him in that movie either. Yeah, that's kind of I think that's the role that people really talk about. Um, you know, maybe most prominently with him, but I uh, haven't seen that one yet. But anyway, um, great, great cast in the whole movie. Um, Scott, let's talk about sort of just some of the. Th- thematic elements of this movie because obviously there is a lot to unpack you know you said you had to take a couple days to think on it i mean i'm certainly still thinking on it um you know a couple weeks later um and you know it's it's a heady experience and i think some people will come out of the movie just kind of like you know with a lot of question marks um and that's that's understandable um you know i've already sort of talked about one of the themes which i think is kind of the fruitlessness of chivalry in a way I, I don't know if you have anything that you want to add there about the way that this movie you know we're talking about it with king arthur as well a different portrayal of him the, the way that this movie sort of unpacks um the medieval idea of chivalry yeah i think for me i think that particular lens is not one that i necessarily fixated on but i do think it's related sort of commonly to like a lot of the things that that i think did grab my attention throughout the film. And it's this idea of, you know, these men, I mean, look, I, I do think that you have to sort of like tap your nose a little bit and say like, oh, this whole thing is fiction, right? Like it, this is just a, a medium for which David Lowry is talking about these like overriding themes. Right. So like what I'm about to say is obviously just constructed by David Lowry to support the themes that he's trying to explore. But it is this interesting notion of, we all have these preconceived notions about who someone like King Arthur is, who Guinevere is, who even Sir Gawain is, right? From re like just from the context and pop culture and you know, the this sort of like things that are just generally accepted within, you know, society. And I think that immediately setting up a movie that questions every notion of like this is not some grand sunny exciting land for king arthur who's like you know this really athletically built young man to pull a sword from a stone 
where like this is a a dark, grim, rainy environment with a bun with with an old man who is past his greatest years, if those ever existed. And I think that this whole notion of chivalry, which you're referring to, ties into that, right? Like, like this is not a world full of great deeds and like good deeds for the good of the common man, right? This is just a bunch of people who may or may not have done these amazing things at an earlier point in their life that are ultimately just subsisting and going from day to day self-interested in their own status within the court that ultimately surmounts to just trying to be this, just trying to become this old man who doesn't do anything with his life. He might have a lot of wisdom. He might be well-loved and that might be worth valuing, but there's no chivalrous act in the film. I mean, the closest that you might even get to that. And I think where it really does dive in to that particular notion is when he arrives at that castle, his last stop before getting to the green chapel where there is this Lord and lady who I think are very intentionally not assigned names <laughs> in the movie. They have names in the poem. I'm pretty sure. Um, but you know, this notion of here's a moment where, you know, on his journey, he could, he could, he could, you know, sort of start putting forth these sort of chivalrous acts. And he dabbled in it a little bit with, Lady Winifred and and that whole supernaturally tale there, but this is his moment to be the chivalrous knight that he aspires to be, and that's not the behavior that ultimately comes out of it. And I think that sort of exploration is that like chivalry is a nice idea, but in practice, where does it really exist? If yeah. not in our if not in just our minds. Well, yeah, I mean, I, and I think the sort of the interconnected theme here is, yeah, just unpacking, um, not necessarily suggesting that like chivalry or heroism is just like non-existent, but that it looks a lot different than um, maybe what we're accustomed to seeing. It's not it's not necessarily sort of these grand feats, right, like cutting off the head of the Green Knight or like the things that, that we see um, portrayed and you know all sorts of king sure. arthur stories and lancelot and all that it's more about sort of like maintaining your principles right and you know keeping being morally straight in a way like the a lot of the challenges that gawain encounters on um you know on his journey to the green chapel are sort of um in sometimes minor ways sometimes you know more major ways are sort of testing his morality and testing his principles and see what he's willing to compromise in order to, you know, achieve what he believes is at the end of the rainbow, which is, you know, uh, fame consideration, like King Arthur, like to be looked upon honor, um, like King Arthur. Yeah. Honor. Um, and in most regards, he fails these challenges, right? Um, he, you know, it starts off small, like I said, with Barry Keegan's character. He's mugged. He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't give him the money. He doesn't give him, a, you know, a little bit of money um, that Barry Keegan wants after you know he does him the favor of, um, you know, telling him exactly where to go. Um, we did have. The whole... Did he tell him exactly where to go? Well, that's a bit. That's yeah, a bit unclear still, to me. In the moment, he believes it. He believes sure. that yeah, he's true. told him the right thing, um, and he does not. You know, he doesn't really give him anything until um barry keegan asks and even then he flips him a coin very little 
we have this whole scene that you talked about, Scott, with Aaron Kellyman as Winifred, um, where he's like trying to retrieve her head, but he's kind of like, what's in it for me a little bit? Um, you know, he, he's being a little greedy. And then I think maybe the ultimate example, right, is what happens at the mansion with him and the lady with Alicia Vikander's character, where mm-hmm. he sort of gives in to sexual temptation, despite the fact that he has, you know, Essel waiting for him back back home. Um, and uh, but she's stains, also Essel. <laughs> yeah. Stains the girdle. Right. In a way that like is very it's again, this is the image that got people laughing in the theater. But it's a, it's a very like pointed image in the movie like it's one of the most important images in the movie i think is the picture of is the image of this girdle you know after he has given into his temptation because this is supposed to be sort of like the the image of like the girdle is supposed to like represent in a way like that moral uprightness those principles again Um, like i said that's the thing that's protecting him that is the thing that is protecting him this whole time is that he still has his principles but when he you know, literally and figuratively stains them, things change. And we see what the consequences of that are when he gets to the chapel at the end, right? Like, um, you know, he he ends up uh, in the vision, right? In the vision that he has, he ends up as a reviled king. He loses his son. He ultimately loses Essel, who ends up, you know, hating him. He marries another woman. Um, and he just kind of ends up, a, you know, kind of like we see, King Arthur, like maybe they suggest King Arthur is in the early scenes of the movie, like I said, a broken man feeling like, what have I really accomplished when I get here to the end of my life? Um, was it really all worth it? The answer is, I mean, the movie would seem to suggest to me that the answer is is no. Um, and I think the ultimate point, right, is that like being a good person um, sometimes is, is hard, right? It's a hard thing. And you may not even be rewarded for it at the end of the day, right? Because, you know, the last image of the movie is him deciding to do, again, what the movie posits might be the heroic thing, right? Which is to accept the consequences that he has wrought for himself. Um, but what does he get out of that? Well, he gets his head cut off, presumably. That is what's going to happen. No, Did you stick around for the post credit scene? <laughs> yeah, that is true. I mean, he, he the post credit scene, um, somebody He's else gets child. around. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. But uh, I think, again, it, it's interesting the way that they portray sort of these little challenges along the journey and, you know, testing his moral fortitude. Uh, And like I said, suggesting in a way that in the end, if you want to be remembered as a a hero or whatever, um, or as a good person at the very least, you're going to have to, you know, do some tough things and you may not really see the reward from it until after you're you're dead or you've suffered serious consequences, maybe. It's so interesting because I had a pretty different read of the final act of the movie, Okay, which I don't think is I, I don't think they're necessarily in opposition to each other. But I just interpreted something pretty different out of it. I mean, first off, I found it pretty striking. I guess to rewind to an earlier part in the film, like he has the girdle taken from him in the in basically the beginning of the second act of the movie when Barry Keoghan's character and the right. little mob, they take his girdle from him, right? The one that his mother had sewed for him. And, you know, I, I don't know how that fit necessarily fits into the narrative that you're talking about, but the fact that he is then gifted a new one when he gets to the castle. So fast forwarding quite a bit 
past through past all these other journeys, right? Like, that well, he's been he gets on. it back after he. Well, see, this here's what I'll say. I, maybe I was a little bit harsh in talking about the whole thing with Winifred, because I mean, again, yeah, he does like um, say kind of what's in it for me, but ultimately he does go get the head, and then I believe after that, right, is when he receives the girdle back, or am I misremembering? He just gets his axe back. That's when he receives the axe back. That's when he receives the axe back. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. he gets the axe back, but he never gets the girdle back, and he's gifted a new girdle. Right. He gets yeah, to the castle, yeah, yeah. Um, and then immediately. Saying that, and, and I think I guess focusing in there and just talking about the parts you're talking about, like I read a lot of this as you know, he stains this girdle. I'm on, the, I'm definitely on the same page with you here, where he's like, he's become greedy, right? Like he is, he has succumbed to temptation. And I read it less like, yes, it starts with this sort of dishonorable act that happens between him and the lady of the castle. But it continues more when he has this deal struck with him, right, between the Lord and him that he will give the Lord whatever he is given while he is at the castle in exchange for the goodwill and the favors that the Lord and the lady have done for him, which would include the girdle, right? But he lies. He lies to the Lord and tells him that he did not receive anything, um, even though it is very clear that the Lord knows that he has received something. And he goes on his way gets to the green chapel and this sort of dream or vision or however you want to describe it that he has when he's kneeling in front of the green knight, you know, readying himself for the blow that he is, that he is owed. I, I kind of interpreted this not as, you know, he is this sort of like, I don't know, repulsive King or someone who's not well liked, but I did view it in another way you described it is, exactly like the life that King Arthur has now. And it is this way as he's grown old, he's made decisions that on the surface do not look very honorable or very chivalrous to use those words. Right. And I think that his realization is that I, I kind of lean, maybe this is maybe a little bit more harsher than ever is that those things don't exist in the way that we, that we perceive them, right? Like the way that myth making would have you believe Right, which I think gets back to the thing that I really latched on to in this movie. This notion of of fig like heroic figures from myths just don't exist in the real world, right? Like this is the way real life is done. And the only way that you achieve the perception of that status is by lying, is by being deceitful and dishonest, and by being and by running away from true uh, confrontation and challenges that might test your grit or test your heroism and whatnot and you and you flee and you become these kings who don't really have great feats to speak of in reality but only the deception and the lies that create these myths the myths that then create the heroic myths i guess you could call them and i think yeah. he realizes that that to to your point right when he realizes that he realizes that's not a life that he wants to pursue and it's not rewarding it's not something that feels fulfilling and so he takes off his girdle which i haven't like fully wrapped my head around the role of the girdle because it is like stained but it's kind of it's kind of a mechanism for you know creating these sort of deceitful myths anyway so it's not like super clear to me how it fully plays a role like i'm still pondering that a little bit more and he does the honorable thing at the end of the movie and my and i think the movie would want, like you think the honorable thing and that is and like submit to his fate and what he is doing Again, yeah but yeah, what he has wrought upon himself. Yeah, and whatever that um, might mean, because I, I think it's more ambiguous at the end 
sure. um, than we are led on to believe. We certainly don't see what happens. I mean, I think one ending implies one thing, and then the post-credit scene implies maybe something else. Who knows? I think it's a repulsive, honestly, that this movie had a post-credit scene. Um, but, but here we are at cinema, I guess. Yeah, no, I I, I do agree. I don't, I think our points can kind of, kind of complement each other here. I, yeah. And, you know, to, to your point, too, about maybe the movie portraying the chivalric thing as sort of, you know, being, again, more not morally straight and lying and running away, being cowardly. Uh, like the whole feat which sets all of this into motion is that it's not like some sort of impressive feat or anything. He kills right? an, like, un, the, an unarmed the is, man. The Green Knight sub- surrenders to him and yep. and they cuts off his head and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, he's the hero, right? Like Gawain, it's un- it's amazing what he did to the... No, it's yeah. not. Like anybody could have done that. Um, it's, it's kind of, yeah, it, yeah, it's stupid in the grand scheme of things. And yeah, that kind of goes back to what I was saying a little bit earlier about sort of, yeah, this is kind of just a fruitless pursuit to um, to pr- pursue this, um, you know, idea of, of chivalry because you are either going to achieve what you believe is chivalry but have compromised all of your principles in order to achieve it or you are going to, uh, you know, you are going to keep your principles intact but you're probably going to die you know, or suffer some sort of consequences. The world's going to um, take advantage of you probably. Yeah. At some point. As a result of having, you know, stayed through these challenges. Um, and that's kind of what we see at the end again, when he takes off the girdle, but um, yeah, I mean, a, a lot to unpack. I mean, we, we, we've still really maybe only scratched the surface a little bit with, um, you know, how thematically rich the movie is. Yeah, I mean, but, we haven't even talked about the Fox. So. Yeah. Anything you want to say about uh, the Fox? He's cute. Fantastic Mr. Fox. I'm a fan. Yeah. I don't know if you actually want to dive into like what we think the Fox represents, but I I, 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 like I don't think Fox. so. Is there anything else you want to add though before we move into wrap up? No, I, I just think this film has a lot a lot to offer. You know, I you talked about your experience and there were some people who maybe weren't in on the joke or didn't get the joke quite right with with some of certain scenes and laughing out loud. You know, I, I saw this film on the second weekend of release, so last weekend as the time of recording. And this was a Saturday night at, you know, my local AMC here in on the Upper West Side. And the crowd was really good. They were the people who I think knew what the movie was, knew what they were getting into and were fans. Although it was funny, the people right behind me. I told you this, Scott, I think off air, um, maybe last week when we were recording. But the, the woman behind me is like whispering during the trailers, the trailer that in particular, I think is Lamb. Another A twenty, another weirdo A twenty four movie that my mom would not be a fan of probably, and just whispers to I don't know if it was her husband or whatever behind behind her. I don't know why movies all have to be so weird these days, and I'm just like you're you're in for a weird movie. You know where you are right now, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like you presumably knew what movie you were coming to. Yeah, and I mean, look, there actually are a kind of like Midsommar. There are actually kind of a couple of funny moments in the movie that I sure, believe yeah. are like intentionally funny. Yeah. Um, but like the, you know, the stain on the girdle is is certainly not one of them. That's just kind of, again, immaturity. I feel like uh, the people who are reacting in that way to that. Yeah. But I like the line when uh, when he's talking to Winifred about 
you know, the, the head and all that. And he says like something like, are you real or are you a spirit? And she just goes, who cares? I just want my head back. Like I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that's kind of, that's like basically what she says. Yeah. Um, kind of a, you know, witty line in a way. And there were a couple other moments I'm, I'm having trouble remembering a little bit, but there were, there were a couple of times when I like chuckled and was like, that was actually supposed to be funny. I feel like, um, so yeah. All right, let's move into wrap up, Scott. Your favorite scene or moment from the Green Knight? And I, I love the the final showdown in the Green Chapel. I'm I am a big fan of Ralph Innocent's performance, as I talked about, and I think the very abbreviated conversation that he has, sort of before and after this vision, dream, whatever you want to call it, of the future that could be if he were to, you know, run away uh, from from this confrontation. I just think it 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 really punctuates the film in a really strong way and perfectly sums up i think everything that this character goes through in the film and i and i like the the relative ambiguity um of the outcomes of the decisions that dev patel's you know sir gawain makes um at the end of the day hero when in in the big moment so i'm a, I'm a huge fan of how this film wrapped up yeah, me too. And that's why I, you know, have talked about how much I love the vision sequence again, which is um, this is going to be a really weird movie to compare it to. But oh boy. La La Land, right? It it, uh, uh, yeah. it okay. has yeah. that sort of feel. I of see like, it. Yeah. Oh, here, here's the here's the vision of what could have happened. Right. If mm -hmm. um, we acted in a certain way. Um but, you know, then we, we get brought back to reality. Um, and I think this movie, yeah, again, does it in a pretty stunning way with um, the long wordless sequence that you don't need any words. Right. It's it's great. Show, not tell filmmaking. You you, you can easily follow everything that is going on. Um, and I just found it really impressive to show us all that and then, you know, finish things off with a bow on top to your you know moment that you um pointed out in a way that never seemed like a that never made it seem like a cringy oh it was all a dream sort of thing like i never got that like I, I, again yeah. i found it very effective so yeah i mean and all also right. we didn't talk enough probably about the craft i mean we we talked about it generally up front but the score production design cinematography all super masterful the, the sound design was unreal in this movie at times like yeah. i really noticed it in this movie in a way that i don't always um Totally. And yeah, Agreed. it was really atmospheric. Um, Should be noted, David Lowry edits all of his own movies. Impressive. Let's put a score on it. What uh, do you give The Green Knight out of 10? 9.2. 9.3 for me. Um, I uh, I love the movie. I think it could even go up um, on a rewatch, to be honest. I agree. And I, I do yeah. really want to rewatch it. Um, it's a lot, lot to here. digest. Yeah. If you're up for the challenge, I think you'll be very much rewarded by. Uh, yeah. If you're looking for a passive lean back movie on a, you know, this week, this weekend, this ain't it. A kickback 120 plus or this is not it. You know, no. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, that'll do it for our review of the Green Knight. Uh, when we come back, uh, we have a couple of news items to hit, including some casting news. And uh oh, it's another COVID delay. Uh, we'll be right back. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, a couple of news items uh, to hit before we finish. I'm going to throw it to you first uh, because, unfortunately, we have a COVID delay uh, of a film release for the first time in quite a while. Uh, Why don't you tell us about what movie has been pushed back due to the Delta variant concerns? Yeah, whether it be Delta or Lambda or whatever other new variant has come out. (laughs) Or Carnage, yeah. Or let or there or be carnage. Uh, it has delayed Venom to the Tom Hardy, Woody Harrelson, Michelle Williams classic, I'm sure, that was scheduled to be releasing sort of mid to late September. I think by late September. It's been pushed back. Uh, it's one of these weird things, Scott, where, look, if this is a COVID delay, why are they only delaying it like three weeks? <laughs> it's not really going to get better by then. It's probably yeah, only going to get worse. And they're delaying it to a month right in October. In just a right? crazy month. Yeah. So it's going from like September it, 24th to October 15th, I believe, or something almost, like that. You yeah. almost wonder if they're trying to bury it among like, yeah. you know, some of the big releases that are coming out in October. Because, yeah, you're Maybe. you're right. Like, what? why, why delay it three weeks if, you know... I mean, that that doesn't seem like that much is going to change in three weeks, to your point. Um, maybe yeah, there's, I, there's something else going on here. Yeah, I mean, so it's getting pushed three weeks from September 24th to October 15th. The same weekend, might I add, that Halloween Kills and The Last Duel is set to come out, which is a week after No Time to Die and a week before The Last Night in Soho and Dune. If those, Of course, this is all assuming these movies actually stay on on the calendar and are not also delayed. But it's just this weird thing, like, you're moving it into a more crowded time period. And I think that, frankly, September is a very open month for yeah. a blockbuster like Venom 2 to sort of occupy this space. I mean, it was up against Dear Evan Hansen. I think you could argue and, that those are very complimentary movies. No one's going to be deciding, oh, should I go see Dear Evan Hansen, the musical adaptation? Or should I go see Venom 2? Like, that's not a conversation many people are going to be having, I don't think. And the first movie crushed. Like, even though it, people didn't like it, like, it made... You no, know, critics didn't like it, money. but I think people did like it. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, true. Yeah. Like, it, it, you know, it got bad reviews, but it made buckets of money. And so, like, Absolutely. even if the movie is not that good, I still think people are going to see it, for sure. I mean, it's... Sp- the Spider-Man universe generally does really well. Um, and... Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just think it... it I I can't really parse through the logic of delaying this thing three weeks into a more crowded time period because of COVID, right? Like if COVID is the reason you're delaying this thing, you better delay it longer than three weeks because the box office is not going to be bouncing back from September 24th to October 15th. And a lot of people are much more, maybe I'm way off on this. I might be way off on this, Scott. Tell me if I am. But I think that, no time to die. Maybe not as uh, it's so hard to say. Another movie with mass appeal, like Venom Two, would would have. I think people are not going to go, go see movies multiple weekends in a row as much as they would have 2019, early 2020. I just don't think the appetite for spending a lot of time. Forget COVID. Like the, I think because of COVID, the appetite to to go to the movie theater so often. It's just not as present. It's not as prevalent as it was then. I don't think it's just because of fears of the Delta variant anymore. And I think that you're just shooting yourself in the foot if COVID is what you're concerned about. Um, movie theaters are not going to close again. 
I'm, I feel pretty confident about that. I don't I like the people who are going to go, who want to go see movies probably in mass are probably going to still be going to see movies and you're just delaying the inevitable. And, and I think in this case, handicapping yourself even more, you know, maybe some people over at Sony are trying to get Venom canceled, but this is a big property for them. I don't know why they'd be wanting to make it more difficult for it to be successful unless they're ultimately angling this thing to just release on a streaming platform. Yeah, I mean, it's not exactly uh, the Clifford, the big red dog situation, right? Where you can look at it and say, yeah, they probably uh, they probably moved this, not because of the Delta variant, despite what they say, but because they want to pull a Sonic the Hedgehog and like just go at fix all of the animation that people were just absolutely horrified by um, in the trailer. I don't know if, if they can fix Clifford. That's the only thing. <laughs> He's still got to be a big red dog at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. He has, a, he has a base flaw in that he's a large red animated dog. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, I don't know what the motive is is uh, either, but I will be interested to see when the movie comes out now in the crowded month how it does commercially what are people saying about it critically? Uh, I'm probably know. still going to see the movie at the end of the day, but like, actually, maybe not, right? No Time to Die the previous weekend, Dune we and the last night in Sohead yeah. the weekend after. And frankly, I'm way more interested in the other two movies coming out that weekend with The Last Duel and totally. the, and um, Halloween Kills. Halloween it's, Kills. it's the third movie I'm going to see that weekend. And that's, I mean, I see the three movies in a weekend sometimes, but... It's the least likely of the three that I, of the three. It's the one I'm least likely to see. That's just the truth. Like yeah. I'm not everyone, but there you go. After you've watched, you know, uh, <laughs> Halloween Kills and yeah, um, a lot of duel, a lot of stabbing. Are you really going to drag yourself out of the house on Saturday after or on Sunday afternoon after you've already seen two movies that weekend to go see? freaking venom let there be carnage i, I think frankly doubts. scott i'm more likely to go see no time to die again than to see venom let there be carnage you're gonna go see a 160 pluser before you see venom let there be carnage that that 100 percent 100 wow uh scott has really been bond pilled by our uh, series i think i think you're, you're all i was always a big fan. bond no i've always yeah, been a yeah, daniel no, craig I'm bond kidding. fan we just haven't had a forum to talk about my craig fandom because we haven't had a bond movie since 2015 or whatever it was it's been a great time 2016 i i, I just i just uh, it's okay scott we'll, it, it, we'll if you don't if you're not enjoying it it's okay we look the, the movies have not been on on average of the quality of the other series well star wars no. maybe i don't know some of those we set too high of a bar for ourselves probably oh, we did nolan and fincher last year what, what were yeah. we expecting <laughs> it's like eight nine movies out of my top 100 that we talked about it between those two series but yeah all right scott last news item to hit here uh and it's some casting news about a project we've already talked a little bit about wes anderson's uh next film it does not have a title yet um but recently i think we talked maybe on the podcast about tom hanks and tell this one yeah being being cast in this movie um tom hanks being somebody who's kind of an atypical person has not appeared in a a, uh, wes anderson film before um and you know wes likes to stick with the same actors often actually you know i'm not sure we did talk about tom hanks i think we might have just talked about tilda swinton and bill murray okay well yeah yeah, tilda swinton bill murray and adrian brody have all been cast in this movie all wes anderson regulars but yeah uh, we have a couple people coming into the fold who have never been in a wes anderson film tom hanks being one margot robbie being the other who was announced this week is going to feature in this film Again, not a lot of details on the movie yet. Don't even have a title. Um, 
but Wes Anderson is one of those guys at this point who can sell a movie just based on his name alone. Um, and so people will, you know, definitely be uh, interested to see this one. Um, and I'm interested to see what these, you know, high caliber actors can can do in the, this movie, you know, genuine movie stars and Tom Hanks and uh, Margot Robbie. Um, of course, you know, this is not the only time that um, that Wes Anderson has done this. Bruce Willis, I mean, was in uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Um, and there's some other examples we could probably think of, too. But uh, interesting to see two, uh, like I said, movie stars of, of you know, a, a truly A-listers um, getting uh, picked to do, you know, a movie from an auteur director. Um, Tom Hanks, especially, I think, in in later years has, or I mean, in, in most of his career has kind of worked with more, you know, straightforward, mainstream, crowd-pleasing directors, um, the Spielbergs, the Zemeckis, those types. Um, Margot likes an auteur. Yeah, yeah, that is true. But, you know, maybe maybe he is taking a new direction with his career, right? Obviously, he's, he's getting older. Um, maybe we'll see him kind of um, go down this auteur route. I mean, he did... Um, he did a beautiful day in the neighborhood with with Marielle Heller. I mean, you know, it was sort of an Oscar movie or whatever, but that movie was was pretty different, like from a lot of the the you know what you might have expected. A lot of the other Oscar movies, maybe what you expected, what you would have expected from a Mister Rogers biopic. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I, I do think Marielle Heller would still be considered sort of an in, independent director despite that film. Um, when you, oh, definitely take into account her other films so maybe this marks a trend for tom hanks is my point of um aligning himself with some more big names in the indie world uh, more so than you he's know he's doing like a lot of a24 directors. movies he's got that weird oh is it like robot movie finch or whatever that's okay. coming out i don't know who's directing it but he did greyhound like last year there then. yeah um well greyhound i i forget who that was an a24 that. that was an apple plus one right yeah, they have that co they have that co pro deal, but so that was a twenty a twenty four was involved with that somehow. No, no, no. I I, I don't think it was. I mean, a twenty four just distributes Apple movies. Yeah. Um, in theaters. I would say that Greyhound is actually probably. I mean, I didn't see it to be fair, but it seems like the movie that you would expect Tom Hanks. No, that, that's what I was gonna say. I think he's yeah. doing like a mix of both. It's right. I think it was one a Sony film that got sold to Apple. I think it was directed by Aaron Schneider. I don't know who that is. Anyway, Scott, your thoughts on these two people being cast uh, in this Wes Anderson film? Obviously, Marco Robbie, I think one of both yeah. of our favorites. So. Yeah, I mean, look, I want Tom Hanks to do something interesting with, you know, whatever time in his career that he has left. I mean, I don't know how long he wants to keep acting. Like you said, he is getting older. I'm much more interested in him doing something quirky with Wes Anderson than playing, I don't know, like another Captain Phillips or with you know, this colonel or commander that he Bridget isn't great in greyhound i mean pretty spies is more my my type of movie i'm interested in that kind of stuff like that's more my vibe but yeah i'd much rather see him do something weird with wes anderson or i don't know god forbid being an a20 being an actual a24 movie right um but yeah i mean look we'll see margot robbie certainly interesting you know she's had a fair mix i guess of the types of movies she's done she's done things with your you know, renowned filmmakers like your Martin Scorsese's, your superhero movies, although generally with more interesting directors, although I wouldn't say David Ayer is an interesting director, but James Gunn, Kathy Yan. Um, 
I mean, she's doing interesting. She's doing films even in like the broad appeal genres with interesting people. And then moving on to something like this, you know, with Wes Anderson, you know, with Quentin Tarantino, who, yes, has mass appeal, but is an auteur. Um, She's picking good movies. I think that's what we're really well, saying here. We'll, we'll see if Wes Anderson's movie is good. But yeah, she is picking good movies. And I think a large, a large part of that is that she is very careful with what she chooses. I mean, granted, she's also done some smaller stuff like Dreamland. I didn't see, I know you saw that last year, but I didn't see very that. Boring. But Very uh, boring film. I also think that was one, that movie was probably filmed like years ago. Oh, to be I'm sure. Like yeah. Margot Robbie looks like. The thing, I mean, that, that thing was like always a direct DVD release, I feel like, or like a direct to VOD. Yeah, it feels release. like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she, you know, she, she chooses her projects pretty carefully and she's often executive producing those projects. I mean, you think about these DC movies that she's been in, Certainly Birds of Prey, su- the the Suicide Squad. I mean, she's a she's a pretty heavy creative hand, I think, in those movies a lot of times, especially as it relates to Harley, uh, Harley Quinn, her character. So I think it's really interesting to see to see her be flexing those muscles while also taking a step back and you know, being a part of these auteur directors as well, whether it be with, you know, acting out Sharon Tate's um you know what many would would be the at the time you know in in the real life in the real world would have been the twilight of her life but um yeah and doing something like that and then doing whatever this is going to be hopefully it's good wes anderson can be hit and miss for me but i think it's interesting i'm glad tom hanks is doing something interesting too because i'm tired of stuff like the post and greyhound stop trying to win oscars tom just do something interesting yeah, I'm here for it. You know, that's that's honestly been why Tom Hanks has n- never been one of my favorite actors because I I do feel like sometimes that he doesn't necessarily challenge challenge himself. Uh, but I loved him in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. I mean, I loved that movie in general. Like I said, because it was so different from what I was expecting. You see Tom Hanks playing Mister Rogers, you think you know what you're going to get. Yeah, um, it's not and that. that wasn't that wasn't the Muriel Muriel Heller film again probably largely because Muriel Heller was the one who directed it. But I think though, the strange part of that movie is not the performance from Tom Hanks and the way that he plays Mr. Rogers, but the way the film is oriented around him. So I still think it's the kind of performance you expect from Tom Hanks, but it's not, it's not contextualized in the way you would have expected it to be. Yeah. Right. That's true. It's just a more sort of tonally interesting movie, but um, yeah. I think that will do it uh, for this episode of Something Like It. Scott, Scott, anything you want to add? Anything else you've been watching um, that you haven't gotten a chance to talk about? Yeah, what else have I been watching? I did start watching The Outer Banks Season 2. I've watched the first two episodes. It is fun. I don't know why they are doing to Kiara what they are doing to her. She has had a mental break, it appears. And is making just horrific decisions. Hey, her best friends are, were presumed dead. Okay. Yeah. Well, even after they were proven to not be dead, she's still making her atrocious yeah. decisions, um, like screaming at Ward as he right after he murders someone, uh, even though they literally have it on camera. So you know that's cool, I guess. Oh uh, well, yeah, they did. it's it's unclear from the camera footage though. Is it unclear? I mean, I guess you have to editorialize why he's killing him, but it's pretty clear that he kills him. Like, executes yeah, maybe, him. <laughs> maybe, um, oh, they lose the camera footage. That's what it is. That yeah, yeah, yeah. It breaks. I was, I was like, but there's some reason why the police don't. Yeah, they're running away, and because she had alerted him. Yeah, damage. Yeah. Pope, Pope drops it in the 
because he gets right. kicked by JJ. Yeah, I'm through um, four episodes, so I'm a little bit further ahead. Yeah. Of you, but you'll probably catch up and pass me. I mean, I'm slow paced on these things. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm I, I'm going on a trip. You know, I'm gonna I have four flights in the next week because I'm also flying down to Miami for a day um, while I'm away in Cincinnati. So I've got four flights. Maybe I'll watch movies. Maybe I'll watch Outer Banks. Maybe I'll read. It's a the world's my oyster out here. But the only other movie I've watched is I watched Monsters University, 2013 classic i believe and i i say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek but man a lot of fun big harry potter pitch perfect crossover vibes um which i kind of liked it just as much if not more than monsters inc which is probably like a terribly hot take um but it is (laughs) i had a lot more fun in this movie than in monsters inc even though monsters inc is probably a deeper movie um monsters inc probably my least favorite pete doctor movie but uh it was one of my favorites as a kid, but I have never seen it or I have not seen it in a long time. So Yeah, I watched this Monsters University. I watched Monsters University and I saw that they have this ongoing right now, like animated, like high quality animated TV show called Monsters at Work. And I'm like, should I watch this? And I haven't said yes yet, but who knows? Maybe I'll be tempted. Who knows? Um, Scott, another thing you might be able to do on the, those plane rides is uh, listen to a certain podcast, which I want to briefly recommend that I have just now gotten into. Uh, it's a true crime podcast called To Live and Die in L.A. And I'm a couple of years in, in a sense, I'm a couple of years late to it because the first season that sense. I just listened to was in 2019. Yeah. But the second season is ongoing, like just started releasing in 2021. So in, in that sense, I'm. I'm not late to it. And I'm actually caught up to the start of season two now, at least. Um, but the first season is about um, a missing persons case that happened um, a few years ago in Los Angeles with this actress um, who came over from, was an immigrant from Macedonia, um, disappeared um, without a trace from outside of her apartment. Um, and this Rolling Stone reporter named Neil Strauss um gets involved with the case and it's kind of kind of becomes in a way like sort of a unlikely buddy cop story between neil strauss and this private investigator named Jaden brandt who is the archetypal private investigator like this guy just fits the private investigator stereotype like so perfectly um but it's an absolutely fascinating listen. Like it might actually be my favorite true crime podcast that I've listened to because the case just goes to crazy places. Like, you know, he's, he's following the thing as it's ongoing. So you're, you know, you're getting everything happening in real time. And some of the twists that happen are just crazy. Um, you know, even several episodes deep into the series, it does fizzle out in the end a little bit, but that's just kind of the inevitable. That's the nature of, of true crimes. Yeah. Yeah. When when you know, these things just typically don't like get solved in any sort of neat fashion. Um, so you're never going to have like sort of that again, that tidy ending. But the um, one exception is just the absolutely fantastical nature of the true crime series on HBO. The the jinx, which is the story of Robert Durst, Robert Durst where like he literally admits to the crime yeah. in the last episode. It's crazy. Yeah, you're right. That is the exception. But uh, this is, I mean, to live and die in LA, very, very worth it for the journey. If you're into true crime sort of stuff, you're going to be absolutely hooked. Like, again, I don't like to binge through certain things like this, 
uh, even podcasts, but I binged through this. I got through it in a week and a half or so. Um, and wow. it's 12 episodes, about 30 to 40 minutes each. Although there's a couple that are like an hour long towards the end. That's but, a lot of 120 plusers that you could have watched. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm driving around a lot during the day for work. So I, uh, I listen to it in my car and that's, I got a portable a DVD player on the dashboard and be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, use my phone, drive with my feet, you know, just. I've seen crazy stuff. I mean, probably oh. drive, drive with your knees, not your feet, but like, yeah, you could do my, it. My good friend, Matt, who lived in Oklahoma that I know oh, from college, obviously I went to college in South Carolina when he would go home on holidays, he would, he would, prop his phone up and he would watch movies like as he was driving <laughs> home to Oklahoma. Like he had a whole, he had it all figured out. So it was pretty, I bad. feel like Ben Bateman one time talked about how he would listen to movies. I don't He, he never admitted to I've watching them, say, I think, but he'll like, li- he'll like turn movies that. on and listen to them. And I'm like, what a weird way to consume movies. Yeah, it, it is. I also think it would be like, I mean, he might have done that for like trivia purposes. I think. It would oh, I'm 100 percent sure that's what it was. Yeah, I think it would have be an interesting experience for certain movies, maybe to just see how they play with only hearing the audio. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, look, my opinion would just be just listen to an audiobook. Sure, or listen to a long form podcast like To Live and Die in L.A. Anyway, sure, absolutely, absolutely. I think that'll do it for this episode of the podcast. Uh, Scott, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? At Shelton 2013 on Twitter and on Letterboxd. It is. Uh, and I'm at Scarby Dent on the same platforms. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Some Like It, Scott. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash pods. Even if you can't support us over there, uh, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And... We hope you will be joining us for our next episode, which will actually not be next week. We are taking next week off. We're going to give ourselves a little bit of a summer vacation. Um, But in two weeks, we will be back uh, and we will be reviewing uh, Nia DaCosta's remake of the Clive Barker horror classic Candyman. Until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road. Thank you.